This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Luke chapter 7, 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one... I suppose, for whom he canceled the Lord of death. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I've had the privilege of attending, I would say, countless rehearsal dinners and uh, wedding receptions. And I've heard dozens, if not hundreds, of toasts or what might be known as bridal party speeches. And I would bet that in every one of those toasts or speeches, the speaker talks about the couple's love for one another and or conveys their desire that this couple would enjoy a marriage filled with love. If I were to pass out three-by-five cards at a wedding, any of the weddings that God has asked me to lead, and if I were to ask those in attendance, what, your, what is your prayer, or if you're not a religious person, what is your wish for this couple? I think if I were to gather those three by five cards back, the word love would show up on nine out of ten of those cards in some way, some shape, some form. But if I were to say to the one raising the glass and giving the toast, or say to the one turning in a three by, three by five card, okay, now when you say love, what exactly does that mean? And how exactly does that happen? I, I think most of us would struggle to articulate a response. And so what I think about love is that it is something that we all want for ourselves and it is something that we want for one another, but it is something that we struggle to define and it is something we struggle to understand. 
So what I want to do today is I want to give biblical answers to questions like these. What does a marriage filled with love mean, and what does it look like? How does it happen? How does it come about? How can we do it? And so towards that end, I want to look at this passage in Luke chapter 7, and I want to ask it these three questions. What is love? How can we love more? And who tends to love much? What is love? How can we love more? Who tends to love much? If you would keep your worship folder insert in front of you, we're going to be in the passage a lot today. Let's start. What is love? This is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible for lots of reasons, but one of the main reasons is that it gives a picture of love. I think that we, in the world in which we live, we use love in flippant ways. We use the word love in nebulous and ill-defined ways. We use the word love to do to other people things that are horribly unloving. I've also found, uh, especially the younger we are, the more we believe that love is simply the ability or the courage or the willingness to say, I love you. But the Bible, on the other hand, does not struggle to define love. The Bible, in multiple places, defines love and illustrates love over and over and over. Our passage in Luke is one such example. In verses 37 and 38, the, the woman's actions are, are clearly defined. They're clearly specified. And then in verse 47, Jesus himself summarizes all that happened in those verses. He summarizes it as, she loved much. In other words, when Jesus at the end of the passage says she loved much, we don't have to wonder, what does that mean? We can look back up in the passage at what she did in verses 37 to 38, what Jesus said she did in verses 44 to 46, to get an accurate definition of and picture of love. And so specifically, uh, towards the goal of how we love our spouses more for Mary, but generally, if we're, if we're not married, or if we are, how do we all love everyone we're in relationship with more? What is love? And so Jesus is invited to eat dinner at the house of Simon the Pharisee. And in Jesus' day, uh, at an event like this, the invited, honored guests would recline at the table uh, to eat. The table would be in the middle of the room. And around the extremities of the room would be other members of the community who were allowed to come and watch the invited guests and listen the conversation. And so we know that Jesus, it says in the text, is reclining at table, but most likely he's on his left-hand side. His head is towards the table. His feet are behind him. Pick up in verse 37. And remember, Jesus says, this is much love. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed him with the ointment. First, what is love? Love is not essentially verbal. Notice how a woman who loved much never said anything. While love can be expressed verbally, love is not essentially verbal. How often does someone give their heart to another, only to have the other use them for their own purposes and their own pleasure, before leaving them alone in isolation and pain? Now, what will the injured party inevitably say in that situation? I don't understand. I'm so confused. 
They said they loved me. In light of the fact that Jesus says what this woman does is much love, in light of the fact that she doesn't say a word, we can quickly say love is not fundamentally, it is not essentially, it is not at the core the ability to say anything or the courage to say, I love you. So if love is not essentially verbal, what is it essentially? Here it is. Here's a definition from this passage. Love is the radical giving of self through the sacrificial giving of our various resources. The radical giving of self through the sacrificial giving of our various resources. Jesus in John chapter 15 says that, that love is ultimately expressed when someone does what? Lays down their life for their friend. It could just as easily read, gives over their life to their friend. Love is to give your life and the resources you have for the benefit. Look at verses 44 to 46. Jesus is going to compare and contrast Simon with the woman. Just read it again. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me the water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with inexpensive oil, she has anointed my feet with expensive ointment. This is what love is. The radical giving of self through the sacrificial giving of our resources. Just think about what the woman gave Jesus when she gave Jesus herself. She gave her comfort and her cleanliness by bowing down uh, and using her own hair to clean Jesus' feet. By the way, these would have been sandals that have walked through all kinds of streets, villages, and pastures. They would have at least had dirt particles, if not dung particles, on them. <laughs> this is why people washed their feet before they ate. She gave her dignity and her honor in approaching Jesus in such a public setting and letting her hair down in the first place. She humbly gave of herself emotionally as she wept over Jesus' feet. She, she finally gave up her significant wealth and she, she gave up her future to some degree when she anointed Jesus' feet with the ointment or the perfume. In that day and age, women would wear a flask of ointment around their neck, a flask of perfume around their neck. And it was not, uh, it was not like running the way our perfume is. It was not liquid, I guess I should say. It was more of an ointment. And the hole in the flask was not big enough to get the ointment out. Women would not wear these flasks of ointment uh, in an effort to put a little bit on their skin. They, they wore it so that the aroma would constantly arise out of the flask and surround them. These alabaster flasks of ointment were very valuable. They would be a family heirloom. In a woman's life, she would never dream of the day that she would break it open and pour it out. She dreamed of the day of handing this wealth down. Jesus says in verse 46 that Simon didn't even anoint his head with inexpensive oil, but the woman anointed and poured expensive ointment all over his feet. To do that, she would have most likely, almost certainly, she would have had to break the neck off of the alabaster flask and make the, the contents of the flask useless. So what is love? In any relationship, but particularly in the marriage relationship, 
is not the ability or the willingness and the courage to say, I love you. It's the radical giving of self through the sacrificial giving of whatever resources God has given us. We love when we take our spiritual resources, our emotional resources, our financial resources, our physical resources. We love when we take any resource and we spend it and we invest it and we pour it out for the benefit of another. Jesus became clean. She became dirty. Jesus became more comfortable. She lost her comfort. In a very real sense, Jesus is enriched, and she becomes poor. What is love? Love can be expressed through words, but it is not fundamentally words. Love is when one spouse prays for their partner as much or more as they pray for themselves. Love is when one spouse gets as emotional uh, or more emotional about the circumstances in their spouse's life compared to the circumstances of their own life. Love is when a spouse uh, views their body as not their own and gives their body to their spouse in joy and service. Love is when a spouse takes their ability to daydream and daydreams about the future of their spouse more than their own future. Love is taking any resource that God has given us pouring it out to the benefit of another. I'm not really sure what we mean when we raise the glass and say, I want you to have a loving marriage. But this is what the Bible means when it says that it wants us to have a loving marriage. This radical giving of self through taking whatever resources we have and extending it for the benefit of another. So if that's what love is, how can we love more? Second question, how can we love our children or our siblings or our neighbors, but especially this morning, how can we love our spouses more? Here's the answer to the question. If you're a note taker, this is the thing you're going to want to write down. In short, we can love more by receiving more of the forgiveness that Jesus has given to us. In our text, Jesus says there's this direct correlation between how much forgiveness a person receives from him and how much love that person gives to other people. So at this point in the Gospel of Luke, there are these massive crowds following Jesus around. And they're trying to figure out, it's like, it's like this, this theme that's going through the entire, the entire Gospel at this point. They're trying to figure out, who exactly is this man? And so when you read uh, this story in the context of what's going on in Luke, you, you can see, look, Simon's brought this, this Jesus into his house, and he wants to inspect him. He wants to compartmentalize him. He wants to categorize him. And so in verse 39, Simon says to himself, this is bizarre if you don't know what's going on in the book, he, he mentally deduces that Jesus is not a prophet. And then in a moment, he's going to call him a teacher. So Simon has said, well, he's not a prophet, he's only a teacher. But then Jesus, who's not just a prophet or just a teacher, but God of the skin, he reads Simon's mind like a prophet could. And in verse 40, says, it says that he answers him. Which is this clever little way of Luke letting us know that, that Simon didn't say anything out loud, but Jesus still answered his question, or he answered his statement. And in his answer, he is not worried about Simon understanding who he is. He wants to commit the woman for her love, and he wants to explain to Simon how love happens. Pick up in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's about 20 months of income for a laborer. And the other 50 denarii, uh, 
about two months of income for a living. Verse 42. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? The point is, how can we love more? So Jesus puts this very simple question to Simon. There's an obvious answer. You will be somewhat thankful for a $5,000 gift. You will be more thankful for a $50,000 gift. Verse 43, Simon answers the one, I suppose. I mean, can you smell the smugness here? The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a right to death. And, and Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. And then if you, if you keep your eyes on the page, in verses 44 through 46, as we've already seen, Jesus compares the woman's much love to Simon's little love. And then again in verse 47, uh, Jesus says there's this, this direct correlation between how much forgiveness a person receives and how much love that person gives. Look at verse 47. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. He loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. How can we love more? To love more, we have to receive more of the forgiveness that Jesus has already given. Now, Jesus is not saying that she's forgiven because she loved much. He's saying that her much love is evidence of the fact that she's been forgiven. If you, you go back up to the hypothetical situation that Jesus presents to Simon in verses 41 and 42, the hypothetical situation says this, once the debts are forgiven, who loves more? Forgiveness precedes love. Love doesn't earn forgiveness for past sins. And Jesus is teaching us that like a gauge on your dashboard that tells you how much gas is in the tank, and like the statement from your bank that tells you how much money is in your account, our love of other people tells us how much forgiveness we've received from Jesus. Ironically, the way to love more is to confess and receive forgiveness in regard to how unlovely we think. Ironically, the best lovers know just how unlovely they have been and how unlovely they can be. Receiving forgiveness from God for a lack of love is the power for future love. So we have several pictures or diagrams that we use in our premarital training at New City. And these pictures or diagrams we have found serve uh, in helping us learn biblical theory. But more than that, these pictures and diagrams help us assess real life. So once you get the theory, it's helpful to assess real life. And the most frequent uh, diagram that I ever draw on the whiteboard, whether it's for myself or for a, a couple of premarital training or, or a married couple coming in looking for, for some help. The, the most frequent uh, uh, diagram I put up on the board is a simple triangle. And at the top of the triangle, if you could imagine it, if you want to draw it yourself, at the top of the triangle, I draw a very small triangle. And I put the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the point is, at the top of the big triangle is the Trinity, God. And then, ordinarily, on the left-hand side, I put the husband's name or the, the male fiancé's name, and on the right-hand side, I put the wife's name. Because ordinarily, on a wedding, that's where they stand. So that's how I see them. And what I do is I, I teach from that triangle, myself and them, that if we want to love one another well, that is across the bottom of the triangle, we have to receive well the love of God for us in the gospel. To love each other more, we have to receive more forgiveness from God. 
You see, I, I believe, and you can tell me if you think I'm right or wrong, I believe that most engagements and most marriages are between two people who see their relationship simply as this horizontal line. They've come into this relationship with, let's say, follow me here, a hundred units of life and love. And they've decided that they would enjoy their life more if they give 50 units of life and love to a spouse. So long as that spouse gives them 50 units of their life and love back. And so the man thinks, for instance, I'm tired of being by myself. I think I'll enjoy life more and get more satisfaction from life if I keep 50% of myself, give away 50% of myself to a wife, and get 50 to 75% of my wife in return. I think we enter into marriage with, with this posture of negotiation. What will you give me based on what I'm willing to give? And what this internal bargaining creates is this environment where both spouses are constantly inspecting their actions and the actions of the other and always wondering, am I giving more than I'm giving? And eventually one of those spouses says to themselves, I'm giving my 50 units of life and love. But they're not giving their 50 units of life and love. And because of this, I have less life and love than I have And in some, this realization makes them proud. And they choose to stay in that marriage because they love feeling better than someone else. But for others, this realization brings them to the end of the marriage. And while they can never get back to who they were prior to being married, they think, I'd like to go back there where I have more life and love. And this is the inevitable and the vicious cycle of marriage that is understood as a line and not a triangle. I will love you as much as you love me. Instead of, I will love you as much as Jesus loves me. Biblical marriage is a triangle. It is not a line. If I believe that the debt forgiven me by Jesus is massive, I will be energized for giving a massive love when we're little lovers, verse 47, it's because we think we only need a little bit of love from Jesus. It doesn't matter what your theology says. It's the revelation of our heart and the love of others that matters. You can know how much forgiveness you think you've needed by how much you love other people. And you can increase your output of love or you can gain more power in your love by receiving forgiveness for the lack of love. Oftentimes in a marriage counseling context, either for myself or for others, I will say, we need to triangulate this. And I will usually say that when I or someone else is thinking of their marriage as a simple line, instead of the bottom portion of a triangle. Ironically, anytime we focus more on ourselves or the other person than Jesus, love decreases. Anytime we focus on Jesus and our need for his forgiveness for how unlovely we've been, love increases. So finally for this morning, who tends to love much? Now, if you're thinking, if you've been listening, you might be thinking right now, how is that not redundant? 
Uh, the one who's been forgiven much tends to love much. The person who realizes how big Jesus' sacrifice was for them will sacrificially give more themselves to other people. And while that's true, I, I mean something more particular than that in question number three. By asking who tends to love much, I'm also asking who tends to realize how much forgiveness they need. Now look with me at the story. There's this incredible irony in the story. The woman thrice labeled as a sinner isn't sinning. And the man known as a godly leader in his community is arrogantly disrespecting God. Let me say that again. The woman labeled as a sinner isn't sinning in the story. And the man known as a godly leader, leader in his community is obviously and arrogantly disrespecting God. Look at verse 37. Let's start with the woman. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. And now every commentator is going to tell you that this woman's a prostitute. Here's why. Uh, there's one word for both wife and woman in the Greek. And this one word is translated wife or woman depending on the context. And so put your adult, your adult ears on. Verse 37 reads this way. She was a wife of the city. If you want to be able to turn on your heads. Gotcha. Look at the end of verse 39. Not, not only Luke calling her a sinner, but Simon. She's a sinner. Not only that, but look at, look at verse 47. Jesus calls her a sinner. Her sins are many. She's a big, fat, nasty sinner. But the woman labeled as a sinner isn't sinning in the story. She's the model of much love. But look at the man known in the community as a godly leader. He's proud. He's judgmental. He's stern. He's smug. He's stingy. He's a big, fat, nasty sinner too. And he doesn't know it. Many of us heard this passage growing up, and we, being good little church kids, learned, or at least heard, that we could never love much because we've never sinned much. In my church, this passage was normally referenced when a big, fat, nasty sinner, someone who listened to rock music, someone who drank alcohol, someone like that, when some big, fat, nasty sinner would come back to the church. And the pastor would say, well, at least now, they have a chance to give much love. Because as we're taught in Luke 7, those who are forgiven much, love much. And my little brain heard, I'll never love very much because I've never done anything that bad. And that is a horribly inaccurate and inadequate understanding of this passage. Friends, the sinner isn't sinning. And the godly leader is judging God in the skin. Do you see that? The point of the story is not that Simon doesn't sin. The point of the story is that Simon is oblivious to his So do you remember in the second point how I said that in order to love each other more, we have to receive more forgiveness from God? I said it that way very intentionally. And why did I say it that way? It's not because Simon needs less forgiveness than the woman. It's that Simon needs, he is currently receiving less forgiveness than the woman. He is receiving the forgiveness that he Look at the end of verse 47. Jesus says, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. He, Jesus doesn't say, but he who God forgives little, loves little. He says, he who receives little forgiveness, loves little. 
Please don't think that Simon has sinned less than the woman. His sin is private. His sin is internal. His sin is publicly encouraged. The sinner isn't sinning. And the godly leader is smacking God in the face with his hubris. Who tends to love much? Or who tends to realize how much forgiveness they need? You see what I'm saying? This passage is part of a significant thread in the Gospel of Luke, and that thread is this. Listen closely. Jesus does better with prostitutes than Pharisees. Jesus does better with reckless rule breakers than religious rule keepers. And by, by better, I mean more reckless rule breakers seek forgiveness from Jesus than religious rule keepers, although they both need his forgiveness It's in Luke 15 that we're given the, given the very famous parable of the prodigal son. Another story in Luke created by Jesus to show that he does better with prostitutes than Pharisees. It's in Luke 18 that we're given the very famous parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Another story created by Jesus to show he does better with irreligious rule breakers than religious rule keepers. And there is this major thread in the Gospel of Luke that should scare the little goody-goodies in here among us, including me. It should scare us to death. With religious pride comes contempt, which is hatred for other people, and hatred for the grace that we need for hating those people. With pride comes contempt, which is hatred for other people, and hatred for the grace that we need for hating those If you're into the Bible, you need to know that there's two ways to rebel against God. There are two ways to rebel against the God who gives grace and then guidance for life. Grace and guidance. On the one hand, irreligious rule breakers rebel against God's lordship in their disregard for and in their rejection of God's guidance. It's rules. But on the other hand, religious rule keepers rebel against God's lordship in their disregard for and in their rejection of God's grace. And both are rebellion against the God of the Bible. Both are spitting in God's face. And some will turn from religious religion to Jesus, but more will turn from irreligion to Jesus. Who tends to love much? I'm not asking who loves much. The answer to that is so simple. It's the one who receives much forgiveness. I'm saying, who tends to love much is the one who needs forgiveness for your religious sins and not religious ones. Let's go back to our series, Biblical Reflections on Marriage. If your spouse, like me, who usually falls away from faithfulness into religious ways of thinking, which means that if you, like me, run from Jesus by obeying his word, See, some of us rebel against Jesus in religious ways and we run from his lordship by obeying his rules. Uh, some of us rebel against Jesus and his lordship by breaking his rules. If you're like me and you try to be lord of your own life by obeying his rules, we need to know that we most likely relate to Jesus the way Simon does. And we need to know that we most likely relate to our spouses in the exact same way. 
The Bible says that we love others in the way that we love Jesus. Do you know that? When we go to Jesus and say, I love you, he says, go out there and love people in my name. And so how I treat other people is what I think I need from Jesus. And how I treat other people is an echo of how I treat him. The way for us to love our spouse more is to discover how grotesque our goodness is. What we perceive as goodness is probably received and experienced as pride, smugness, contempt, judgmental condescension. Good news. Those are big, fat, nasty sins. And we can take those sins to Jesus and find forgiveness. And in receiving this forgiveness, we can be empowered for a greater love. The good news is this, is that Jesus in dying on the cross is dying for two types of people. First, he's dying for people like the criminal hanging next to him. Do you remember him? You remember the murderer who believed in Jesus in that moment and to whom Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. But Jesus is also dying for people like Joseph of Arimathea. You remember him? He's the Pharisee. He's the rule keeper who converted to Christianity after listening to Jesus and seeing him die on the cross for his you see, the Pharisee didn't need to go out and do something publicly horrible like the criminal on the cross to be included in Jesus' salvation. He just needed to realize how horrible his invisible pride and contempt really were. And so each and every one of us needs grace. And the grace we need is extended to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's go there now. Jesus, we, we thank you. That your love of us is so extravagant, so unconditional, so beautiful, so massive, so wonderful. And we thank you that your love of us, whether we realize it or not, is so amazing. We beg you, whether we are religious or irreligious, we beg you to open our eyes to how much of your love we need. So that we might receive it and give it to others, particularly our spouses. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and you would help us see that our religious sin is just as nasty as the irreligious sin of the world. Would you humble us and lay it upon our hearts that we have done nothing, can do nothing, and will never do anything to earn your love. And that, in fact, our attempts to earn your love are as nasty Jesus, we confess we don't love much. Although we've been learning about love for a long time. Would you please give your love to us in the place of our greatest need, our sin.